which makes us dangerous. And I love it. I live in it. I rebel in it. Welcome to the Under the Sycamore Tree podcast. I'm your host, Carla Moore of Moore.ja. We are delighted to invite you to our yard to hold space under the sycamore tree with one another for this episode, Labor Lands Cooperatives. In this episode, we'll bring you a very full conversation I hosted with three organizers. We day up on the veranda. You day up on the veranda. Put me a hand your mind. Cock up your foot. I make a good time. We'll be discussing topics that some listeners may find triggering, including sex work criminalization and neocolonialism. We understand that these topics can be difficult to hear about, and we want to remind our listeners that it's okay to take a break if you need to. First is Keithlyn Carew, founder and executive director of Helen's Daughter St. Lucia. Helen's Daughter is an organization founded in 2016 to promote the economic development of rural women through adaptive agricultural techniques, capacity building, and improved market access. More specifically, the organization aims to expand opportunities for rural women who work in agriculture. They also want to promote financial and digital inclusion for women in aspects of agricultural outputs, foster female entrepreneurship, and enhance the productivity of women-owned enterprises, enhance the voices of rural women in decision-making related to agricultural policy and beyond, eliminate legal barriers to female economic empowerment, and reduce gender pay gaps in the agricultural sector. Dr. Nicola Surale, Executive Director of Integrated Health Outreach, Antigua and Barbuda. Integrated Health Outreach, or IHO, is an organization which works at the intersection of gender, climate change, and health. The organization was founded in 2013 and delivers programs to build eco-sustainability and advance health management as measures to bolster the resiliency of vulnerable groups. The organization is committed to addressing the challenges faced by small island developing states, including climate change and natural disasters, in relation to how these issues exacerbate economic social, and gender inequalities. Denise Carr and Felona Roberts of Sukos, the Suriname Coalition of Sex Workers, took part in this episode as well. You may remember that we highlighted Sukos in our previous episode, A Self-Possessed Selfhood, or Sex Workers to the Front. You will hear from them again here. This is another very full conversation, and there is so much that we love about it. Firstly, why did we bring these three groups together? Well, I'll turn again to our writer, Jackie Brown, to briefly discuss this. Hi, Carla. Thank you, as always, for having me and for hosting our podcast. Hi, everyone. This was one of the episodes that really structured our approach to the entire podcast, Carla. Um, And that's because um, these three... When we looked at the organizations who were intentionally structuring their organizations around a cooperative-based model, it seemed to be that they were in two lines of work. They were either our agricultural organizations, 
or the organizations who were organizing sex workers. And so we thought, well, what would a conversation around cooperative models look like? What happens if we bring folks working in agriculture and in sex work together uh, and see how deeply they're both incorporating and taking from cooperative models um, to, to build their visions and dreams out? And then that led us to wondering, well, to what extent is it because of the labor focus of the, the work that each of, of them do, why cooperative models might make more sense? Uh, so that's why Sukos, uh, IHO, and Helen's daughters are together in a conversation, or they were with you, Carla, some time ago. Um, and we just thought it was a great way to honor how many of our countries got independence, which was through labor movements. Um, and also to just try to understand, you know, if there are other options besides nonprofitization for our work. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember when we were in the process of like trying to decide how the things would come together and then these two came together. I feel like there was a, an invisible thread between these organizations that didn't become visible for me until like you put them together in this way. And I think it, it's some of the, the work that still remains to be done in like thinking about sex work differently. So like putting sex work alongside agriculture is not something that I ever would have thought of. But then when you listen to the interviews and you think about it from a labor perspective, it makes perfect sense. Um, and then when you think about it from a, a land, land as autonomy, land as space for self-determination, land as a way to opt out of like a traditional, you know, funding, whatever. It made even more sense. But I am telling you, at the beginning, me never did ever think, say, yeah, man, sex work and land. Yeah, mm -hmm. right there. So, two of them together. You know, but Angelic, never see. Like Sukos, both organizations use cooperative-based organizing models, both formally and informally. This portal of feminist cooperative collectives and agricultural organizing starts from histories of our relationship to the land of our region and works through why our visions of farmers are gendered, how patriarchy structures paternalistic versus maternalistic relationships to land, and how organizing between women, even just women being together with one another, is interrupted. First, Let's turn to Keithlin for more context on the agriculture of St. Lucia and St. Vincent and the Grenadines, where Helen's daughter also works. For Keithlin, the gender roles enshrined by patriarchy are the cause of our current status quo agricultural practices. These practices rely on monoculture, extraction, and soil depletion, which are extremely harmful. Keithlin is keen to point out that these are the same features of agriculture practiced under slavery, and these practices continue under our current male-dominated agricultural industry in the Caribbean. This audio comes from our initial interview with Keithlin, led by our producer Dave Ann Moses and Jackie Brown. 
My name is Caitlin Carew. I am the founder and executive director of a solution-based nonprofit organization called Helen's Daughters. We focus primarily on the economic empowerment of rural women, and that's through capacity building, market linkages, and obviously adaptive agricultural techniques. And essentially what that means is that we're trying to holistically um, develop men's careers and also their personal lives, particularly women that are from marginalized communities in St. Lucia. Um, oftentimes we found that in the agricultural sector, women tended to be sort of viewed as in a sense invisible. Essentially what we wanted to do was one raise the visibility, um, the you know the profile of women in agriculture because they are really essential to the food security discourse, um, and essentially create an enabling environment where they don't feel undervalued, but they feel in a sense empowered to be working in agriculture and to have the requisite um, support tools, whether it's from um, mentorship, whether it is from actual capacity development that tailors and meets their needs, because oftentimes a lot of agricultural training programs will happen in the middle of the day. Um, there will not necessarily be an approach that targets women or women, for example, that are nursing and so on. Um, and essentially also the approach in terms of how to really get um, and keep that interest of women, for example, how, how do you really gauge um, those women to, to keep interested in learning about agriculture, particularly for the older generation that tends to be sometimes stuck in their ways. Um, and finally, we want to give them a voice. Um, it's not only about the agricultural sector, but these women have been undervalued and overlooked for so, so long that in a sense, um, they feel, you know, like that this is what, this is where I'm at and this is what I deserve. Um, several women have said to me before we came along, they were ashamed of their profession. Um, they didn't, you know, like a sense of confidence or so on in themselves and their family and friends would constantly, you know, like mock them for choosing that type of career. And essentially it's allowing them to hold their head up high and understand how important their job is, um, especially in, a, in um, a small island developing state where food security is so crucial to our survival. I understand the invisibility that women farmers have um, because I have my, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my grand-aunts were all farmers. They were farmers and they were vendors. So they would plant, they would reap, they would take the... The, the products to to the markets to sell them and I mean even though I know that um, still when I picture a farmer in my head it's always a male farmer. Women are the first formal point of food that we as all human beings have. For both Kieslin and Dr. Nicola of Integrated Health Outreach Agricultural education, land rehabilitation, and care, in addition to the cooperative structures we build to enshrine these, are crucial to social justice, the independence of our region, and our ability to thrive as individuals. For Nicola, agriculture was a means for skills-based training that both invested in individual women and the broader society, while facilitating space to integrate therapeutic mental health practices alongside agricultural training. So my name is Nicola Bird. 
I am the executive director for integrated health outreach in Antigua and Barbuda. And our work is across all platforms of well-being to support community well-being, women's well-being, environmental well-being. And we do work to integrate across these several these various platforms because we find that a, uh, a more effective approach so integrating women with livelihoods and environmental conservation and so there's a lot of focus in that area of a more integrated and holistic approach in terms of improving the well-being and the livelihoods and the capacity of vulnerable women. In terms of our demographics, we do focus on both youth and adults. So because we do work in projects in schools and as well as youth-oriented projects. So we do have a demographic that's quite wide we do target vulnerable communities, certainly, is, is our main target. And we, and, and vulnerable communities in terms of socioeconomic status, so, and also um, more marginalized communities in consideration, LGBTQ+, um, and, 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 and so in terms of vulnerable communities, unemployed, um, underemployed, especially for women. Yeah, targeting mostly women in that area and any groups that are vulnerable um, with, with challenges and disabilities um, across the board in terms of our um, project approach. I mean, when we started, I do come from a mental health background. I've had a lot of um, focus in that area. And, and I also very passionate about the environment and women's well-being. And so uh, initially, there was a real focus on um, mental health and well-being. I learned very quickly that those kind of um, projects or bringing that to community works best, like I said, as an integrated approach. Livelihoods was very, very clear. The need for livelihoods was so important. And hence, when we did a livelihood project, we in integrate mental health, capacity building, well-being into the program. So uh, the, the, the first area focus, you know, like I said, well, the start was the mental health part. But like I said, we adapted very quickly, understanding that uh, vulnerable communities don't respond is so stigmatized and uncomfortable, don't respond to that kind of approach directly. And so we, uh, by approaching well-being from like, again, that integrating that in. So if like just say even the beekeeping project, we do integrate um, coping skills, lifestyle skills into the project so that I guess integrated into a project that we find is more available would not just 
um, interest the community, make them want to participate, but also sustain the project and ensure fidelity to the program rather than people dropping out, not staying with it, that kind of thing. And so the question was, how do we get more women involved in beekeeping? And I do, so I went and I met with the beekeeping cooperative who's also working in the Ministry of Agriculture. And I remember going down and talking about the project with them and getting feedback and um, at the early, before um, this project even um, became available as an opportunity, just seeking out what would be work for the communities. And he, uh, there was a, a gentleman, you know, a colleague was saying, you know, you can have these really great ideas, but um, do you think women are really going to want to get their hands dirty? And there's such a negative association to agriculture and all kind of, um, you know, that which was good that he's trying to say, like, what would be the challenges? And so I always kept that in the back of my mind and, uh, and we didn't know the outcome. So we felt so when I put the first proposal, the proposal forward, we had hoped that we would get 30 women trained in two segments, group one and group two over, you know, and um, lo and behold, when we put the, um, the call out and the, by the end of the day, we had gotten to capacity, beyond capacity, within hours, we had 30 applicants. And by the end, we had a hundred and something applicants. And <laughs> I was so moved by it, honestly. And just this thing just coming in, just email after email. I was doing um, the introduction to the um, that same day we were having the WVL did the the the, the group um, all the the, the 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 recipients of the grant and just to describe your project. And I remember I just started tearing up. For Denise. The cooperative structure allows SUCOs to be accountable in practice to their members over funders. SUCOs, it's a sex worker-led organization. Um, the members are 100% sex workers. Um, we're from different communities, female sex workers, men who have sex with men, and transgender sex workers. So. Um, our journey actually started under uh, um, another umbrella organization we were formed. Um, we were formed as a group of sex workers to kind of work, I would say, work in an organization because we never really had it, no leadership roles or we didn't have, um, we wasn't really considered as experts. So with that, um, sex workers issue was always what person thought. So we decided as sex workers, we want to advocate for our rights and be leaders ourselves. And we decided that nothing for us without us. So we had an election and uh, a board was formed. So from that, we kind of find our way through we started by doing like basic advocacy things, small um, advocacy, you know, where didn't involve too much finance because we really had no finances. There were also some challenges like within the group, like trying to really like, you know, doubts within ourselves if we're really good, if we're really capable of this big move that 
we want to go ahead with. So self-confidence was uh, playing a major role within the group. We didn't have that, um, you know, that confidence that we could have gone farther because it was a big step for us. We never um, really do something like this. It was the first sex worker-led organization in Suriname. So we had a lot of challenges within the group, you know, to be strong and build our capacity to lead because there was a lot of doubts, people telling us that we're not good enough, you know, so the stigma and discrimination played a big part of our growth in the past and it's currently doing now i'm going to start with the past first yes so in the past we've been really like adv advocating for our position in society so advocacy like with campaigns we did also collaboration with um, our lgbt lgbt organizations in basically adv advocating on like things like violence against our community and things like in that area and um in the future we um what we're doing now we also basically because of funds and everything like that and infrastructure we're only like limited right now to be like engaged in advocacy but we would want to extend our services to like testing sites and things like that we're trying now to get more like females and transgender sex workers involved with feminism issue, gender role. So that again comes under like strengthening empowerment and advocacy. So these are our two main areas what we're working at for now. All right, people, let's take our first somatic break. Take a deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. What comes up for you when you picture land? Is it singular, as in the land currently around you or perhaps the specific land upon which you grew up? Or is it plural? Are you taking in a sky-high view of an entire place, a nation, maybe our entire region? Are there suns shining on your upturned faces or do you feel light dustings up first drops of a storm? Are you among fields of green or crops, jungles or beaches, rivers and woods? Are there people around you, many of whom you don't know? Or are you surrounded by a small group of dear ones? Or are you alone? What do you see when you picture pharma? Is your view gendered? Does this change how you think about your country, or region, or diaspora, or independence? Does it change how you think about yourself and your visions? So let me take you to my conversation with Keith Lynn, Dr. Nicola, Filona, and Denise in 2022. So I come from a mental health background. 
And often we'd always hear about people who've gone through traumas and they say, well, I've survived. And I'm like, that's, that's, we're not talking about any high measure here. I mean, because anybody can be surviving. You can be brain dead and surviving. You can be coma and in a coma and surviving. You can be begging on the streets and surviving. Until you're dead, you're surviving. So we want to really shift that idea away from this idea that that's enough. Because a lot of the idea in, in my understanding of survival is not understanding that we are enough and then understanding what our fundamental worth and value is. And that's a human condition. Women in particular struggle with this. Marginalized women, even more so. Vulnerable women. And, you know, when we've heard in our communities, we hear lots of put downs, criticisms. We just did a, here I did a child rights and child abuse project. And while we can't, it's not valid or reliable enough in terms of the numbers, we had uh, uh, adverse childhood experiences survey. Um, just very briefly, I just want to mention this because it's really astounding because we don't have enough of this kind of information, but it, it doesn't form what I'm saying. And 50% um, of the respondents of the 185 who responded indicated that they had at least one experience of sexual abuse in their life. 30%, 30% had had before 18 one incidence of rape. And when we think that this is what women are experiencing, and men too, um, but disproportionately women, but we're not leaving out the men, um, that really will inform how we feel about ourselves because of the impact of these things. And so we need to raise our barometer. There's a lot of negativity about feeling entitled, but everything in balance. We don't feel some sense of that we are worth and valued, then we'll always be stuck. So we want to shift towards what that looks like and know that we're worth it. Uh, 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 uh. Knowing that we're enough and, and, and that we're good enough as a starting point. Thank you for that. And I, I, I feel like that's something that women in particular, like we don't get that messaging. It's like, you're a starting point. You're a suggestion. And then you can start adding things to the suggestion in order to make it real. Thank you very much for that. Denise, Kathleen, love to hear from you about thriving. As we build our capacities, we get to know, well, what's our human rights? What's our human rights? And with that, it gives us an extra energy to go on. And actually, we now, for instance, like with equality funding, um, they funded by people and help us to know more about our uh, feminism. Thriving is for us is like getting our capacity more. Thank you for that. So um I feel I see so many synergies and similarities between what Denise and Nicola was saying. Um, because for me, working with rural women, um, and just to give you the bar the context of sandwich and i think it's much like the caribbean region there's this very like classist system um rural areas which is like 80 percent of our island uh you know obviously especially agricultural communities lower class and then obviously women in agriculture even lower um and i when i started this work it was about economic empowerment but then i saw when we started and continued we realized 
the empowerment piece was the most important piece about it. Because these women would give me stories and say, you know, I love agriculture, I love to farm, but the shame of people telling me, oh, nice girl like you when you're in agriculture, or, you know, the shame, like, you know, and the way that society judges you, and it's hypocritical because in the one sense, everyone right now in the region is talking about agriculture and food security and so on. But at the same time, in our households, it's very hypocritical because nobody's pushing their children into farming or into agriculture and, and the types of things that they say. And um, that kind of demean you when you are in the sector. Even with me um, running Ellen's Daughters, to this day, people ask me, so what do you do full time? And um, as if it's supposed to be a hobby. And for me, when I think of thriving, it's really kind of, again, like what Denise was saying, that achieving that balance of being viewed as, no, this is a legitimate sector. This is actually one of the more, most important sectors um, in the country. And also trying to kind of establish for our women that pride, like that, you know, you are needed. You, you are... Like, we need you, we love you, keep doing what you're doing. Um, and then on the other side of it, I think um, what Nicola was mentioning about was balance. Um, because in the one sense, I think women, especially that are more in productive sectors, you tend to, especially as women, we tend to try to want to outshine men and outwork them as much as possible. And that's how we valued and then you find women even during our monthly days and so on. It's like, I don't want to go to the farm, but I cannot stay home because I have to do this. I have to go to one. And then I'm like, no, it's not about working harder. It's about working smarter. You're a woman. You have to get that balance. You have to understand these things. And for me, I think that is like one, that is what ideally I wanted to focus on. I think about thriving. Yeah. What are some of the, and I'd pose this question more broadly, what are some of the, the ways that women approach things differently in terms of farming, in terms of how we're handling money? What are some of the ways that gender affects that because like i know in jamaica we've always said listen if you want something sorted out just like give it to a lady that work in the market like don't worry she go figure out how to make that money stretch like if we gave her the country to run the country would have fixed by tomorrow because she would have figured out everything so what are from your perspective what are some of the ways that women approach this type of community building this type of managing money differently from some of the ways that men approach it can I just take this question? Because I really love it. <laughs> um, no, because it's something that I, I kind of push and, and people don't get it. They're like, the mindset is all oh, women are, like you said in Jamaica, market vendors. And for us, I think especially now where we're noticing a lot of things, one, climate change, two, soil health, and how brutal we have been in the Caribbean with the waste of pesticides. When we look at women, women have been soil conservationists even before men. Like in St. Lucia, for example, men were primarily, um, when we had our banana boom, doing complete monoculture. Now, you know me and you cannot eat bananas every day. 
But the women were the ones with the kitchen gardens, the, the backyard gardens, who were literally intercropping, cooking for subsistence. And it's funny enough because now that's what's encouraged for food security. Women long before men were focusing on the nutrition of their families, while men were focusing solely on profit. Um, a sector to this day that it's not even focused on feeding our nation, but exporting to feed other persons while ruining our soils, uh, if I might add. And then aside from that, um, I will give you just a personal example. Um, I have, I come from agricultural families from both sides, raised by my maternal grandparents and with my parents. Um, my grandmother, she raised children and grandchildren and she was a market vendor. And um, my grandfather at one point was an alcoholic. Um, so what I noticed she was doing was that he wanted to take control of the money. What she did was she used to hide the money. Lie and say she made this much um, during the day because we knew that money was going straight to the bars. Whereas with her, that money was going into our food, into our school uniforms, into paying whatever bills and so on. And she literally saved the family. If not, we would have been in ruins. And you see that in so many rural communities. That's why it's not a catchphrase when people say, oh, if you're investing in women, you're investing in a family. It's the truth. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for that. And, and there is a way that I think, well, yeah, women do think community. I have to get my family through this. And I know a lot of women who have to do the same thing. Women in my family too. It's like, sir, I made $100 today. You surely didn't make a hundred dollars today, but you're not gonna make my children starve. My children are gonna starve you, right? Thank you for that, Nicola Denise. Yeah, yeah. I'm I, I'm happy to add. I mean, everything that uh, Heatland said, I'm not. You know, I can think about the history and the stories and my family too, and all the rest of the women standing up too. Uh, but um, I would add another thing in terms of the coalition and the community aspect. Because we understand just in the family part, yes, but in terms of the the the, the WVL project with the women's beekeeping, so prior to this project, uh, the beekeeper cooperative was all men and like one woman, and now we have sixty females. And I've talked about this before, where there were a lot of naysayers. Women aren't going to want to do this. Oh. And we had an overabundance of women and not only have they turned up, but they are sticking to it. There's a lot of fidelity to the project. We've added co-funding in terms of developing marketing and uh, branding and, and that kind of thing. But what, what was very clear about the difference between men and women in this is that um, the, the men's beekeeper cooperative, they had tried to brand, they actually created brand, but none of the men would come on board to have a standardized product. They all just wanted independently to go and, as as Caitlin was saying, make their own money as much as they can. Me, 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 me. And they're competing for the space. They can't see how they could come together. And then before the project even started, the 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 the, the president of the Beekeeper Cooperative, who's a man, said, "Our hope is lying on the heads of the women, because we feel that the women will will come together and show us." And then maybe the men will come on board because we've been trying for so long 
to create a, a standardized brand to bring to people together as a coalition. And that's one of the things when we started the project, the one of the things that we said, the condition they signed to come together, we want to work together as a team. And they're re everybody's on board for this. They're all on board to come together. We're working to find, to create that committee within the, the group, branding, sustainable marketing. And when we get the testimonials from the women, um, recently we were all talking together. They were, that's what they were saying. We just see that we, we want to work together. We want to build a, a connection. We want to make this happen and standardize this. So the women are more willing to come together. We also have another project um, with when 30 women farmers for, for a coconut tree reforestation, and they all too want to come together. One of the things they also want is to have like a women's only because they feel when the men come in there, it's all that competition. And, and all the women get this horrible reputation for being bitchy and competitive. I mean, it's part of human nature, so we can't just gender it, but, but women are so much more um, available to come together collectively and understand that it's our collective power that can take us somewhere that can enable us to thrive. Thank you for that. And it's so funny. We become the bitches, right? All day. All day. We've the problem. Who are we? Actually, Rich, we, as you all are about to show us. My little toaster and from that area is that um, from way, way back, it was like, okay, in a prospective man must be this, women must be that. You know, you grow up in a house seeing that, okay, my father bringing in the money. Sometimes my mom is a salesman, because my mom was a salesman. So what happened is that my father also was kind of an alcoholic. So when my father bring in the money, now my mother would have to steer it into different directions. Because when he bring it in, he just think that, okay, that was his job. It come in, this amount come in, I could do the rest. I think that collectively women need to break out from that, you know, that lovable course that you know women is supposed to be this and only this but actually i think that men know that deep down inside women actually can do the same things that they're doing but from a masculine section some of them just don't want to see themselves like you know i'm in a house and my wife is doing this and i'm supposed to do that you know so for me i just my quite yes that's a good old straw I'm yeah. more collectively. Stay with you a little bit for the next question, because I know that Sukos is you're doing that work. Think about like, how do we reimagine gender roles? How do we think differently about what it means to be human how do we think differently about you know what it means to be a part of a collective and i'd love to hear from you like some of your perspectives on that like what are some of the the ways that you're trying to shift gender roles and what are you know what are some of the shifts that you'd like to see us making so like i said um so being the first sex weapon that organized until now it was kind of right, you know, for us, it was kind of overwhelming to actually, you know, know that, you know, as a person also who comes out from the sex workers community, we need so much help. We were like, you know, no one wasn't really giving us that push. We didn't have a lot of knowledge as to what direction, what is up there for us. 
because being stigmatized so long is like sometimes we really believe that you know we're not worth it you understand so for us like i said it's capacity building now that we is our strong point mm-hmm. yeah yeah we're yeah. trying to build networks with other organizations community to help us you know build our capacity so we can know well you know this is this is it this is right from this is wrong they have a lot of um members in our pool in the tech work pool some of us you know come from educational background but because of circumstances you know we have to come out from that and go to this sex work direction and there's some of us who actually don't know anything so like i said capacity building is a big part hmm. but what i can say is that from over the years being in a community during these training advocacy projects and things like that we're actually a far away we're not there where we want to be because um sex work is not legal in Suriname it's tolerated but it's not legal mm. so of course we are not able to like really include any sub policies we're trying to do that now but legally on paper we don't really have no rights because we're not um you know sex work is not criminalized mm. so that's uh one of the biggest steps what we got to try to accomplish so that we can move further with policies, what can really, you know, what we can shape our policies towards our target. We want to have um, other organizations, yes, joining with capacity building and, you know, they try in our opportunity. So, one limit. But of course, we're the person actually living it and we know what is going on. And some persons don't want to get the answer dirty into mixing with sex workers, as they may say. You know, um, you know, if I do a project with this person, what would my family think? This is against my belief. I'm a Christian. I don't go. I cannot. You know, I cannot join team so fully on this. I can't this. I can't because of my religious belief. When they speak to you about what they need so that they can believe in themselves when they speak to you about what they need so that they can feel you know whole and value especially when a lot of times their work is not recognized as we've spoken about like for rural women how it is that their work is just kind of not recognized it favors the men what is it that your communities need in order to feel like they're being developed holistically in order to feel as though they are whole Um, you know, I would say when it comes to empowerment, it's a tricky subject because I think, um, because it's become sexy, people just believe that empowerment, like an agency can empower persons. And for me, it's, I have that belief in you, but obviously like without, with any individual it's within you i'm just sparking igniting a flame that already was there and i think that is that is what has been really important for 
are women want to see that they're being seen that they're being heard you wouldn't believe the simple things that can make a woman feel fulfilled for example being in an ad a social media post simple things or a token of appreciation even taking her to a retreat or something a wellness retreat or whatever it's simple things that we ignite and they keep that flame going and and that's that's with anything you feel seen you feel like you're being heard and that is it's not us i mean granted we create the ecosystem obviously the safe spaces so that we can assist them to thrive but again it's not us it's the women now taking that and continuing with it and i think that's something that at the end of the day as agencies we have to take into account that we are just conduits at the end of the day we cannot completely claim that i have empowered this blah 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 and so on because granted it is in our mission and vision and whatever but at the same i'm not going to take you know claim that i personally empowered you i just ignite a flame and you kept it running thank you um, i think oh oh denise were you talk- go ahead if you were speaking denise you go right ahead i'll come back okay uh, so i think um that was stated something uh a lot of sex workers has been battling with for a long time the stigma has given to us come so heavy on us that you know it's kind of like built in yes this is who we are you're not saying you're not too good you're a bad mother you know so so i've seen it something actually what is you know something that we've been like really battling to overcome and um yes like um actually did i say it right <laughs> yes mentioned There's a lot of things that I will look up, you know, that can really build our up, you know, sympathy. And that is what um, in our community we've been trying to do. We've been trying to engage with our sex workers um, in simple sessions, peer sessions. Sometimes it's just a conversation. We're trying, like I said again, capacity building because we also want to not just courses to advocate for us, but we want to course advocate for our rights. So these are the things that actually, you know, that is boosting our, our esteem up. That yes, despite, you know, this is our work, but actually this is our human right. So what we're trying to do at supports, we're trying to like, you know, let our citizens know that sex work is not you know, our entire being, it's our work, you know, indeed, we have rights, you know, we have feelings. So these are some of the things that we try hard at Sukhas to build self-esteem of our clients. And you know, when you, when you, you, you build the self-esteem of clients, you can see so much because I have a motto, I say, get to know us before you judge us. I always say that, get to know us before you judge us. Don't just stigmatize us because you hear that we do sex work. Stop coming a day and see what the life of a sex work. See that besides our work, we're mothers, we cook, we clean, we do everything. We send our children to school, we make sure that they have a proper education. We try as much that they don't come down our path. 
because it's not easy. Like any other model, we try to guide our children through. That's why all the day, you have to know what's for. For you, you're working in coalitions and you're working in cooperatives with people from different economic backgrounds, people with different mental health experience, people with different gender identities, some of which are not even recognized by your government. What are some of your experiences and what are some of the things you've learned along the way about how we can work together across our differences? Um, so I, you know, I'm glad you asked this question because it's been something that I've been, I could say recently battling with where constantly, um, you know, you hear, oh, women are events most enemies and blah, blah, blah. And, and I think, um, I came across a situation um, recently where, again, as you said, women are not monolithic. Um, we have different backgrounds, different ages, and so on. And recently, with another rural women's organization, um, we've noticed that they've been pulling away when we started out trying to be very collaborative and so on. And obviously, there's an intergenerational issue there as well. Um, but after thinking about it for quite some time, I started saying to myself, but you know what's really sad about this ent entire situation is that it's the systems that have been constructed just against one, one another. Um, in this particular situation, um, and this is why it's important to have grassroots organization, organizations thriving. Um, our organization obviously started and has been led by a real women. The other organization obviously has was created by an agency and so on. Um, and I started seeing that agency in a sense kind of pitting them against us when we started working together on essentially the same things. And I realized that um, this is why, in a sense, our work is so important because it's not aside from just obviously our aims and the social impact that we're creating but we are literally changing systems, changing mindsets, and fighting against constructs. Um, in a sense, it's like creating a new freedom in their minds, in, in, in particular these women. Because I think the hardest thing that people don't really understand, if, for example, and I've been there, me and, and Denise, for example, going to a meeting, um, we're both executives and so on. Naturally, it's, you know, um, Denise, um, Caitlin said this about you and blah, blah, blah. There is a system that's created to essentially pit us against one another. And, and it has actually been a fight to bring women together to allow us to realize, you know, we're, we're all not the same, but we're fighting for the same things. And I think that has been the most difficult thing because people kind of clamp it up as, as in genetically women are predisposed to fight against one another without actually realizing that, again, there have literally been systems constructed for us to operate within these toxic environments. Yes! It's like we just get up and have issues with each other without being like, you withheld resources from us for years. Yeah. Hello? And then coached us into hating each other. What do you mean? 
<laughs> right. Sorry. One, Nicola. Yeah, I, w- I, I would just add to that that I think that when you have, like when we come back to, I used to talk about access, and when you competed for limited resources, and when your survival is dependent, let me go back to this idea of survival, is dependent on these resources, then yes, it's going to bring out this competition. Mm. But when we uh, start to to break out of that or, or challenge that, or when you come to realize um, how much better we are working together. I mean, I have to say that what I knew when I went into this project was, or what I felt rather, not new, but open to learning. Um, but what I really felt was that this is, I, as Keithlin said, this is a mindset. So from the, when we did the, the vetching and, and the applications at that initial vetching and interview process, we talked about the goal of this is to come together and work together. And we said, because when you're signing on for this, this is what we want you to come in thinking about. We want you to come in with this understanding. When we brought the group together, we talked about that. That became cornerstone of the ongoing conversation. And yes, we may come from different backgrounds, different whatever, but at the end goal is we want the same thing. We want to achieve that, that sense of security, empowerment, and, and, and you know, some sense of our placement. So if we're, con- and, and just constant, and we did, and, and in each project we go into, that is what, start from that point, start from the mindset, break out of these, this thinking. And if, and we just, I, we haven't seen a problem because you're going from the mindset saying, this is what we need. And then start, you start thinking that way, breaking out of what this, this can create to come together and how we can achieve a lot more if we're working together and if we're in these silos and separate spaces without that community. And women have been, and what's ironic is that women have been doing this forever. Women don't raise a child by themselves. You have auntie and granny and a cousin and this and that and that and that and that. And and historically, women have always actually done the opposite. The families come together. Yes, human beings have personality conflicts, but it's not a gender thing. Women are so far way more inclined to work together, to bring a family together. And then when you do work together, they also frame it in a negative um, light. Like, oh, so you must hate men. Oh, this, this is what has brought you together. You just hate men. Inside the sex work coalition, you're also having trans persons who are sex workers. And in the Caribbean context, it, it's not really recognized. Your gender identity is not recognized. They really recognize you according to your biological sex. And so I wanted to find out from you, Denise, what it was like trying to work in coalition with folks of different gender identities, especially that you have these types of legal and administrative struggles that one set of sex workers will experience that another set don't necessarily have to deal with in the same way. So, um, um, previously in the past, then I think it is, uh, was a big problem, but of course it's an ongoing problem, but what we're trying to do, like I said, um, 
we're trying to shape a policy where, you know, that we don't just look at, you know, things like, okay, for instance, okay, this is person is a trans, this person is a lesbian, this person is a bisexual. But what we're trying to do, we're trying also to include Japanese policies into human rights. Because mm. so, what we're trying to do, we're trying to advocate because, like I said, mainly we're dealing with uh, sex workers. So what we're trying to do, um, like I said, it comes back to capacity building again because a lot of our trans and uh, lesbian sex workers, they didn't know their rights. And with not knowing their rights, uh, you kind to you tend to, you know, persons get to advantage in a lot of areas. And uh, the system in Suriname, like I said, they only identify if you're a woman or a man. So, by implementing capacity building, CSOs is trying to sensitize the, you know, the government institutes, for instance, a police station for different other agencies about sexuality. So, yeah. for them, it's always like, you know, we don't know, you know, they, you know, we need to know more about gender identities and things like that. So, we at the CSOs, we're trying to sensitize them on gender identity trainings and things like that. Because in the past, it, this was never really um, a pleasant sight to see, you know, how we deal gender identity when it comes to persons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to overcome these challenges, we're trying to get them into sessions so we can build a capacity. And another thing that has played a big part in Suriname is because of uh, cultural backgrounds. So that's also something big when yeah. thinking about gender identity in Suriname. But we're seeing a lot more persons actually, you know, coming and talking about it now. It's not like before where, you know, it was a taboo. Actually, persons have, if you want to, if you're transgender, you can't let your family know, you know, because the stigma is going to be there. And like I said, um, um, for sex workers, I can speak. You know, like being in their capacity has helped them along with it. As help them to identify, you know, different areas of their rights. So if they're confronted by, for instance, a law enforcement person, they can say, no, this is not right. Mm-hmm. They can say, no, I we don't think that this is right. You know, this is against our rights, our constitution, you know, things like that. So mm-hmm. capacity protects capacity workers is a uh, it's a big thing because yeah. if you don't know your rights, then you can't speak. What are what is the political and legal landscape that you're navigating like and you know what is it like for you trying to navigate it? You're not part of the decision making process, you're not part of the political process. You're not. So there is sometimes a, a, a misunderstanding of or not really a full understanding of what your your power really what, what um, powers actually move from you and so 
in, in terms of this kind of space, particularly when it comes to climate justice and, and women having to protect um, their own space against um, the ravages of development or choices made which they don't have any power to, they can't make the decisions about what happens to their environment. That's, um, that's a big one. That's a very big one to me and something that, you know, organizationally we, we're working on creating more of that. How do we access more rights to make, to be heard in terms of what decisions are being made that are going to affect us uh, and, and to be more invested the, the communities to be more invested because there is an apathy here in Antigua and Barbuda for sure. The expectation that what we we're never going to have get the rights. The government just makes the decisions, and we and um, and and there's that kind of what I call learned helplessness. And and so everything, every action that we take, where a woman can feel some ownership of her ex, her 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 world, I think it begins to lay the groundwork for which we can then say we need to at least be recognized because the impact of this, the, all these decisions that are being made outside of our control by male leaders that impact me, my children, the next generations. And when we don't know when, where our voice is stripped, that's a big one. That's a big one. That, that there's no easy answer to that. It's, it's, but we, I think it's a fight that we need to take on and, and serve as an organization where we're really focused on what that looks like and um, how we can have some a voice in what decisions impact us. And that's a big one. It's, I don't have an answer to that. That's just like, we think about it a lot. <laughs> and um, and uh, I, I don't think, I, that's just gonna be an ongoing process. I'll just go ahead and call and say that um, really for us in St. Lucia, and I mean the wider re region, partisan politics has been <laughs> destroying a lot of things, um, especially in small island countries. Um, we just recently went through an election and um, in an analyzing the development sphere uh, in the Eastern Caribbean, I'm starting to notice that there is not that many models of sustainability from a grassroots perspective. Um, and again, what I'm seeing with development and the lack of sustainability is the fact that international agencies have created this model in the Caribbean where developmental funding and support goes through government, aka going through bureaucracy, which depending on the party that wins and so on, that could go either way. Um, you're seeing a lot of development agencies, um, obviously those that particularly receive government subventions that are ineffective, that are unsustainable, that spend more time trying to find funding and so on, and much less time, or having to be tied down by what governments or what parties dictate that they should focus on. Which is why I feel like, again, it's groundbreaking work that grassroots organizations, particularly in the Caribbean, are doing. Because one, again, like going back to the story of people still asking me to this day, 
if I'm doing this as a hobby, it's because of the mere fact that there is not instances of a non-profit or social enterprise that actually exists for decades and decades on. And um, I think one of the things that WVL and um, even the Clara Lionel Foundation funding that we recently received as well has given us is that power and that autonomy in our decision making, which makes us dangerous. And I love it. I live in it. I revel in it. How has WBL supported you to work with your communities? So that's part one. And the second part of the question is more of a visioning question. If you had unlimited funding available to your organization, what would be the first two things that you would do with your community? Actually, this is a juicy topic for us mm -hmm. because um, personally, we never received any funding from the government. We've always been striving on our own with private international donors is something that actually we can talk about because um like Kitalin, I think I pronounced the name right finally. <laughs> like Kitalin said point here, we have to be going by the government's rules. Because sometimes the government rules actually instead of protecting our community, it can actually endanger our community further. So, like I said, uh, we've never had funding from them. We've always um, depend on international donors, um, like the WVL and the Red Umbrella Fund, the NSWP. So, yeah. Outside of the sex workers organization, WVL is one of our secure donors that has pushed us so far in many different areas. It has uh, actually helped us to bring together our community seniors and our transgender. Um, by working with white donors, it was kind of challenging for lack of funds. We didn't have a lot of funds to actually do as much as we had wanted to. So the WVL actually brought us a long way in that kind of, you know, mobilizing our team. Because yeah. like I said, it was, it was very challenging really working with one dodo. We were actually trying to reach into different districts where, um, because of funds, we weren't able to reach, uh, we would probably try to go in and assess our uh, committee members there. We would try to like, you know, get them into activities where we can support them more, where we can reach out to them more. Because like I said, um, the sex industry in Suriname is very large and because of the economic pressure, it's getting even more huge. Mm. So we just want to like reach into the communities where we could really reach out to our members, you know, some of them motivate them, build the capacity of, so, you know, let them have an individual thinking and not just, you know, thinking, you know, like, if we move, you know, if we come, like, if we come forward and, you know, come out of the closet of being a sex robot, this might happen, that might happen. We want to actually reach out to them and like, you know, give them guidance on what, you know, 
could be like what assistance we can give them if they do decide to come home. That is just rather mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, um, I concur everything that Ms. Carr said. We the funding is very low, so we have to be able to go into different districts to meet up with other sex workers and help them, whether it's um, financially, it, whether it's uh, financially, you know, let them know that there's an organization that cares to them willing to help them in whichever little way that we can yeah so well how has wvl helped us just i mean enormous we too just like keeplin and denise we don't rely on any government funds we go for independent donors and that too same feeling that we you know we can make our own choices and and challenge systems and do whatever we need to do um we're not dependent and so um, the, the striving has always been to keep the organization growing and optimizing itself. And that's been a huge uh, focal point. So WVL has really enabled us to launch that one of the uh, uh, program um, to really focus on women and support women. And it's really helped us build bridges towards other opportunities. So it's, it's, it's not just a singularity. It's not like, okay, this project did this for one group. It's really, you get this. We've, like I said, we've got co-funding for other areas of this project. It's helped us build other opportunities like, because we have this experience, you learn from this. We've had like an, another 30 female farmers with another project. So it's really a building. It's, it's in and of itself, it's been powerful, but it's a building block. Secondly, WVL is a community you know is what we're preaching here about women coming together supporting each other there's a real sense of family it's not just a donor it's it's a feeling of and so there's a lot of um personal growth too like the organization grows we are growing as an organization but there's a lot of learning and and that comes out of coming from this project just having this kind of forum yeah. and other things that you know opportunities of capacity building that WVL offers us. So it's been very wide. Um, I was thinking the other day that, oh my goodness, the project ends in 2023. Calvin, like, you know, and normally like it just feels like a project ends, but this really does feel like I, I want to be part of this family. I don't want to, I don't want to not be part of this family. So it, it, I have to say that that's, that's the, um, that's really strong. And if we had unlimited resources, oh my goodness, the world is the oyster. There would, there'd be no limit. <laughs> it would be, national it would be regional it would be international it would just be how can we make the world a better place um well try similar to what nicola mentioned unlimited funding international <laughs> regional um i think honestly what i started talking about with regards to rural versus urban communities um Rural communities tend to be the poorest, and I really want to upend that development model that we see here and actually pull, not pull out, but provide from our unlimited funding source. Those opportunities in rural communities, um, from some of the rural, free rural health clinics that we're already doing, the training program, um, just really try to, and then obviously to kind of combat the top three things that we're kind of combating with agriculture, not just with women, but youth as well. 
access to finance. We create our own um, microfinance institution if we need to, you know, um, access to land, actual living and working examples of land banks. They've tried it, but it hasn't happened. We already know. And then finally, really trying to make the sector sexy, make it attractive and persons to feel valued in the sector as well. Um, and kind of spread that in as many territories as possible. This conversation is so important because it brings together so many of the portals of this podcast, weaving them together into a node, which when knitted with other nodes, might just allow us to spark, calibrate, and maintain rewired and wholesome interdependent, unlocking how our concepts of wealth and the role of land in these concepts unfurl so many of the difficult things we still need to tackle collectively and within interdependent, including why is land central to wealth? And what is the place of wealth in our visions for freedom, liberation, and justice? If we stop and think about it, Financial stability is core to the lives we in this team envision for our movement. More than that, we want to thrive. But how many of us picture thriving as financial wealth? And to what extent does this picture of wealth include acquiring land as private property? Sukos, Helen's daughter, and IHO prompt us to question, to what extent is privatization extraction and even hoarding of land and resources embedded within our organizing visions and movements? What are our region-wide models for collective resource management and distribution for collective wealth? And how would that change our ultimate goals for consistent and full access to land for our liberation? Who are the stewards of our land? Is farming the best model of land care and cultivation? What other models do we have for land stewardship, cultivation, and knowledge retention? We know the models are out there, and we look forward to reaching and receiving, distributing those available to us broadly within our movement and beyond. Finally, we notice how many times our WVL Caribbean grantees refer to how women do things differently in a more healthy, non-patriarchal way. But how does this butt against our understandings that gender is constructed, that there are genders beyond man and woman, people that are agender or claim no gender at all, and that these folks have always existed? How have they tended to the land? What are our shorthands for including them in the narratives we regularly deploy? How do we ensure that our coalition or collectives embrace and honor beyond gender binaries. With that, let's check back in with you. Let's begin to seal this episode by tapping back into our somatic alchemy. Take a deep breath in through the nose and out 
through the mouth. Do our questions resonate with you? Do you think they resonate with the conversation, insights, and organizing stories of Keithlin, Denise, Filona, and Dr. Nicola? What questions and knowledge do you have around land ownership, wealth generation, and cooperative organizing models? What other things have you noticed stick in our organizing models and hold us back? How does accounting for all of this change how you view yourself, your loved ones, and your collective liberation, freedom, being, and organizing? How does this change or reinforce your view of ethics within our movement? Change your own personal ethics? Please write this down, and if you do, share it with us. Start this list or continue it if you've already started, but please, we beg of you, don't stop the list there. I appreciate you so much for joining us in this portal, exploring feminist cooperative collectives, agricultural organizing, and sex worker-led feminism. This portal was activated by Filona, Denise, Keithlin, and Dr. Nicola, and their organizations, Sukos, Helen's Daughter, and Integrated Health Outreach, respectively. This episode was produced by Rebel Women Lit and Queerly Stated, with support from Astrea Lesbian Foundation for Justice, Equality Fund, and Global Affairs Canada. Research and writing by Jackie Brown, script editing and project management by Dave Ann Moses, editing and sound by Jorraine Patmore and Sophia Chenier, and outreach by Ashley Daly. Remember to head on over to the show notes to find the details of the organizers featured in our episode and rebelwomenlit.com for additional references. Thank you so much for joining me, your host, Carla Moore, under the sycamore tree.